Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, if you would, as we continue in on our study on that wonderful book. An unexpected arrival is our topic or the title of this week's message. You know, Christmas is a special time of the year. Even for those who are not believers in Christ or consider themselves spiritual religious, it still is a time of anticipation, excitement, and even reconciliation as people's attention is drawn to the spirit of the season. It may not be Jesus, but there is a spirit of the season. However, for many... It is also a time of despondency and despair as they reflect on those who will not be able to join them and celebrate Christmas this year or the substance of unfulfilled dreams that have not come to fruition. But as you and I come to the Gospel of Luke, (coughs) you have to forgive me, I do have a cold. I caught it on Wednesday, and so I'm trying to cough my way through this. You can say a simple prayer for me if you like. But as you come to this Gospel of Luke, we're we're near the climax of the redemption story. We're about to find out about how God will redeem his children from their sin and reconcile them to himself. Luke tells the story of how the redemption of all creation will be accomplished. It contains the greatest story ever told. Authors Fee and Stewart, as you look in the monitor, remind you of how to read the book by book. By book. They remark that Luke uh, remarks to show how the story of Jesus fulfills the story of God, the story of Israel, and of the whole world. And as we closed out our sermon last week, we were committed to reading, praying, and sharing the gospel together over these next few years as we study this book. So again, I gave you that little booklet. If you didn't get one last week, please see me afterwards and I'll make sure you get one. But again, we want you to be reading the story along with us, praying through it, and also sharing it with others. Now, as we come to today's passage, we must remember that we are in the last days truly of the Old Testament. At the beginning of Luke, we're still really in the Old Testament era. Darkness fills the land and the hearts of the former 12 tribes, as they are now under the rule of the Roman Empire. Years of rebellion against the covenant of Yahweh have left them the shadow of the glorious kingdom they once knew under King David and King Solomon. Their kingdom was first divided, and now it's lost. Their ancestors deported and scattered to lands far and wide, even to this day, and now they're partially reunited in a land that is teeming with Gentiles, and they strive to keep their religion and culture alive as we come to this book. Centuries later, their hearts are still far from God. Their religious leaders lord over them with ridiculous and self-righteous rules and traditions that offer no comfort for the brokenhearted or the wounded. Their national hopes are further eroded as Rome sets a non-Jewish king over Israel. However, it's into this darkness as we open up the book of Luke that Yahweh once again reveals himself through the unexpected arrival of the angel Gabriel bearing an unexpected promise. 
So let's open up together and we're going to read from our opening passage of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to read just verses 5 through 9. Join with me. <coughs> In the days of, of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And they had a wife from the daughters, or he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all their commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So Father, <coughs> as we continue in this story, just give us of wisdom and discernment to understand what it is that we're to be certain of as we read this orderly account of the life of Christ by Luke and the Holy Spirit. Let the Spirit have free reign as we listen. Lord, keep us from things that would keep us distracted or, or not entertained or not entertained, but, but captivated by your word. And Lord, may we respond to your work and to your word. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Luke, ever the conscientious uh, historian, gives us both the timing, the characters, the setting, and the plot of this unexpected arrival. So I'm going to give you some observations here. First, Luke records the timing was in the days of Herod, Herod the Great. He was from the ancient country of Edom, and he was granted kingship from Rome in 40 BC, so 40 years before Christ. <coughs> Herod ruled over Judea, Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and, and, and uh, Edom from 37 BC to about 4 BC. Or 4 BC. He, was very un, he was a very unpopular ruler. And he was not accepted by his Jewish subjects. By pointing to this time frame, Luke is setting up the historical record of not only John the Baptist's birth, but also Jesus' conception later in this chapter. Remember, Luke is writing to the Gentile believers an orderly account that will bring certainty to the facts that they have been taught, received with joy, and believed in faith. So these are the days of Herod. There's a historical uh, timing that he wants us to understand. It happened in real time in a real place. In our passage today, we're introduced to three characters, Zechariah, the angel Gabriel, and Elizabeth. Zechariah first is identified as a Levite priest from the clan of Abijah. And King David had now, you, uh, for those of you who have read First Chronicles or so, King David had divided all the priests into 24 divisions by their clans, with the clan of Abijah being the eighth. Elizabeth was his wife. She also was from the tribe of Levi. Luke describes them both as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that they were without sin, or this is about their purity, but it's, it's talking about them being faithful in their religious and ethical practices. Luke also records that they both were older and also childless. Now, this is not the first appearance as we move to the next character, and that is Angel Gabriel. He is first identified in the book of Daniel as the messenger of God who was sent by Yahweh to interpret one of David's visions of the end of the time and begin to teach him another vision concerning about the Antichrist. In verse 19 of Luke 1, we see Gabriel himself and identifies himself as one who stands in the presence of God who was sent to speak to them to bring them good news. 
So those are the three characters that we see. The setting of the story takes place (coughs) in the temple of the Lord, where Zechariah was performing a a -a once-in-a-lifetime duty. I don't know if you caught that, but he's doing something that is only done once in the lifetime of a priest. He's lighting the candles in the holy place. The John MacArthur uh, commentary notes on this high privilege that the incense was kept burning perpetually there in the holy, uh, not the holy of holies, but the holy place, the holy part of it. Just in front of the veil that divided the holy place from the most holy place. The lone priest would offer the incense every morning and every evening. While the rest of the priests and worshipers stood out the holy place in prayer. So he was doing so in the morning. However, since there were so many priests, not every priest was allowed, or not, I'm sorry, not every priest was allowed to do this and they were not allowed to do it more than once this would have been the climatic um, uh, uh, culmination of Zachariah's professional career it would be the highlight of his life a very special moment to go in and to light the candles and light the incense now this brings us now to the plot as we consider this part of Luke chapter 1 as we read together during our scripture reading, we see that Zechariah, he has gone to work, he's in the temple, and he's going for his twice a year duty. He would go for one week for twice a year, only to find that he had won the lucky draw, so to speak, to perform the duties of lighting the candle and the incense. Now, typically the priest would light the candle and offer the incense, and then he would come out to pronounce the blessings, most likely that the one of the blessing that's found in numeral or numbers chapter six. I'm all over the place this morning. Look here in the monitor. In Numbers chapter twenty or chapter six, we see this. Thus you shall bless the, uh, the people of Israel. You shall say to him, the, Lo- the, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is why the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out and were astonished when he was mute. They were expecting this blessing to come once he came out of the temple. However, Luke records that Zechariah had an unexpected visitor in the form of an angel, Gabriel, who brought the wonderful message that God was about to intervene in Zechariah and, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life in a miraculous way by giving them the gift of a baby boy. What we find out, though, is that this is an amazing gift is actually twofold and answers two prayers. The response of Zechariah and Elizabeth are different. As he has trouble believing and he struck mute, not able to speak for his doubt. While Elizabeth responds with praise, saying in verse 25, The Lord has done for me in the days when he has looked on me to take away my reproach. Now the key, (coughs) excuse me, I'm going to go just a little bit slower and take some water if you guys don't mind. I'm so sorry. I know that can be distracting. But the key to understanding this, uh, this passage and its importance is to once again remember where we are in the redemption chapter of God's story. To do that, you and I need to go back to the last book of, of the Old Testament, Malachi. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Would you turn to Malachi chapter 4? In Malachi chapter 4, this is the picture of what we're seeing here as Zechariah is going in the temple. This would be their prayer. This would be the anticipation, the, the mindset of those people that we're reading of in Luke chapter 1. So we go to Malachi chapter 4, just a few pages back, right there in the Old Testament. 
And starting with verse 1, we read that Yahweh makes a promise. He says, before behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Anyone want to say amen on that? I mean, I'm ready for that day. That day is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now, this is a promise of righteous judgment and against those who have rebelled against the rule of the Creator, as well as those that had persecuted Israel, God's chosen people. This would have been a promise of blessing and relief. This would be something that they would be anticipating. Yet God is not done, for He continues His promise in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, um, when, when I act, says the Lord of hosts, this is a promise of their future restoration and redemption. Verse 4, God calls them to action while they wait for this wonderful day. While you are waiting that day of righteousness and justice and restoration, he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I've commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Now, as you and I consider these first four verses, this is what we find Zechariah and Elizabeth doing as we read Luke 1, 6, when it says they're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They are following the words of commandment found in Malachi 4, 6. They are anticipating uh, the first three verses, those promises. They're saying, we know that God is going to restore Israel. Yes, things are bleak now. The world is full of darkness. Our religion Religious leaders are corrupt, but we are being blameless. We are following who God has called us as we anticipate that day of restoration. But as we continue, God ends with one last great promise as you and I come back to Malachi 4, verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I am going to send Elijah to you, he says in verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. One pastor again writes in view of this passion and its connection with the opening chapter of Luke, says this is how the Old Testament ends. It ends with a promise of light, the promise of the sun of righteousness, the sunrise on high, the light of the world, the Messiah, the Lord Savior, will come and shatter the darkness that is in the hearts and in the land of his people. But what you and I have to realize between Malachi and Luke, 400 years have gone by since Malachi uttered that prophecy. No prophet has appeared since then. No word from God at all. There is no light. The only thing that has changed is the rulers over them. From the Greeks, to the, uh, from, from the Babylonians, to the Medes and Persians, to the Greeks, and now the Romans. 
Israel has not only sucked deeper into depression because of the oppressing nations that are occupying their land, but they've sunk deeper into sin and apostasy until the time of the gospel of Guluk begins. Judaism, as we know it, existing in the land of Israel was apostate. It had abandoned the true message of the Old Testament for a false one. It was engaging itself in works righteousness and self-righteousness, all the things that God hates. Israel had suffered then from sin and apostasy, as well as the oppression of foreign nations, desecrating its holy ground. So as we come to this day, you can say, where is the light? That's what the people were probably were asking as they're waiting for the blessing from Zechariah. Maybe the priest, as they're going in there, the only thing that set the day off for Zechariah was he was chosen for the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light the incense and to say the prayer. <clears throat> Where's the sun? Where was the dawn of redemption? Where was the hope of every Jewish heart? In Jesus' day, most Jews believed that for more than 400 years, the Holy Spirit had not been active in Israel because there had been no prophets since Malachi. Now God once again visits his people. In Luke's orally account of the life of Christ, he points out that any rendering of Christ's life, any thought of Christ's ministry, any of Christ's teaching must first begin with John the Baptist. Hence why we start with Luke 1 coming into the life of John. You see, it's John the Baptist, as he will become known, is the prophetic messenger who will prepare Israel to meet the Messiah. He is the successor to the Old Testament prophets. He is the last in a long line and he's attested by Jesus to be the greatest. In Matthew 1.11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So as we open these pages, we are finally starting to see the light shine in Israel. Now, the first point as we're interpreting this point of scripture is to recognize, as you look here on the screen, God is actively acting, participating, intervening in the history of his people. He actively acts and intervenes and participates in the history of his people. The timing is of no mistake, of no accident. Herod is in place because God has put him in place. Zechariah and, and, and Elizabeth are, are childless for a reason because he's going to give them something much greater. It's into this darkness that God throws a blinding light through the means of a promise of not only a son, but of the long-awaited Messiah and the salvation of his people. Back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, you don't have to turn there. God had promised them, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, Zechariah and Elizabeth's promised son will be the messenger who will prepare the way for the Messiah. Which brings us to the second point. God uses normal, flawed people to accomplish his plan and his purposes. God uses just normal, flawed people to accomplish his purposes and his plan. As you and I read Luke's account, there is nothing special about Zechariah. 
He is one of a thousands of priests. He is not the head of any clan. He's just an ordinary man who has lived his long life performing his duties. His wife, unfortunately, would most likely have been scorned and shamed that she had not borne any son, no legacy to continue their family name. In many ways, especially in those days, it would have been very difficult for them. Yet through their faithfulness to God, he answers both of their prayers, the messianic redemption of Israel and that of a son, both of them unexpected arrivals at the same time. Little did they know, little did they know as he went in and got that lucky draw, little did they know that they would be instrumental in Malachi's prophecy. I would like to take a moment and read once more of this supernatural promise. So if you have your Bible still, turn back to Luke cha- or turn back over to Luke chapter 1, verse 13. <coughs> Luke chapter 1, look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been answered. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. In verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts. In all this glorious promise, we see that Zachariah's fear will be turned from joy to gladness. It will be turned to joy and gladness, from fear to joy and gladness. Their sorrow as childless parents will be replaced with rejoicing as others will join in them. No longer will they live as objects of scorn and shame from those that would interpret their barrenness to be signs of sin. In verse 15, we read of God's calling on the child. The angel tells them that their son will be great, but with this privilege will come great responsibility to raise him according to the law of God, specifically with the vow of a Nazarite that we found in Numbers chapter 6. So he will have to live his life in a certain type of way. In verse 16, we read of God's plan for their son, John. He will serve as God's special messenger to proclaim, behold, the Lamb of God. We read that he will be supernaturally protected from the womb with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 17, we read of God's purpose for John as he will turn the hearts of the people back to God. From these normal, flawed servants of God God will sovereignly accomplish his plan and his purposes through the super special supernatural calling of what we would say the son of promise. So many times, and this is really, I'm almost done here. I can't believe this. Many times, as you and I move to the application of any sermon, we are looking for ways to apply what we have learned from the passage. You know, we want a sermon to be personal and pragmatic and actionable. We want something that we can like, uh, take home or, or take in our work. 
We want a spiritual to-do list, uh, to a plan to make us a better person. You and I, typically, we look for a command to follow, a promise to keep, uh, knowledge to inform us, or guidance to walk. And there's nothing, to, nothing wrong with this. And, that, and that's something that we should look for as you and I read and meditate on Scripture. However, sometimes when we are looking for these action lists, Give us three things, three things that I can do today. Ten things I must do uh, tomorrow. Many times when we do that, we miss the forest for the trees. And we make wrong application. Too many times we want to take away points like, well, be like Zechariah and faithfully serve God. Or don't be like Zechariah and doubt God. So which is it? Be like Elizabeth and praise God for his blessings. But don't be like Elizabeth and worry about what you don't have. Or let's be blameless and faithful like Elizabeth and Zechariah. Or be faithful and wait for God's unexpected arrival and promises. And we, we look at these things and we make such wild types of claims and look for promises that you and I can apply for life. And many of those are good points. And that we may and could take away from this passage. However, you and I are not Zachariah and Elizabeth in this passage. And most of you I've known for some time, I know you're not the angel Gabriel. We're probably more like Herod. This passage isn't really about Zachariah and Elizabeth. Yes, they are recipients of two great unexpected arrivals with promise. Prophecy is fulfilled and a son is given. But the real point of this passage is much deeper than that. Again, you and I must remember why Luke is writing this orderly account. Anyone want to shout it out? Why is he writing this orderly account? Maybe you can fill in the blank. So that they may be... No. So that they may be certain. That's why he's writing this account. Going back to our message last week. We must remember that Luke is writing. So that we may have certainty of the things that we have received and believed concerning Jesus Christ. The son of the living God. The Messiah. The sacrificial substitute for God's children. So Luke's account of John the Baptist's miraculous beginning is not to highlight how wonderful Zechariah and Elizabeth are or how, how, how um, lucky they are. But it's about the certainty of three truths that I'm going to give you this out. The first truth is you and I should have certainty that God is sovereign over all of creation. That includes nations, rulers, people, and time. God says in Acts or through the Holy Spirit that all these things were working together so that God's plan of redemption will move forward. Israel, as you can think, is probably uncertain about God. Yahweh's promises are 400 years old. There has been silence. There has been no prophets. Our religious leaders are worthless. But Luke says you must be certain. For God is sovereign over all things. Though it might seem like he's been silent for for over 400 years, you and I know that he was not. 
behind the scenes. He was putting into place the various nations, rulers, and the timing <coughs> for the appearance of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4.4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. John must come first and then Christ. But what you and I must be certain that God has been working when the fullness of time had come. God's silence never meant, now listen to this, God's silence never means that he is silenced. Even in your own life, when you feel that God is silent, it does not mean he has been silenced by anything or anyone. He is in control, total control of all that happens at all times in all places. You and I can be assured, we can be certain that all things work to his glory and our good, including calamity, wickedness, wickedness, and unrighteous things that we either see, live through, and suffer. So he writes so that we may be certain that God is sovereign over all creation. Number two, Luke writes so that we may have certainty that God is faithful in his promise of redemption for his children. God is faithful in his promise of redemption. Nothing will stop redemption from happening. To ancient Israel, it must have seen that Yahweh had forgotten them as one nation after another nation conquers their land and not only doesn't even rule from Jerusalem, but from far away. Each sacrifice is performed with the anticipation of Yahweh's promise, but it ends with frustration, anger, and maybe even sadness as God's blessing seems scarce in that land. Most likely, even the promises that have united and encouraged them during difficult times are now becoming a distant memory, one that many are abandoning from one generation to the next. However, we must be certain that God's plan for redemption was never in doubt. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us among him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You and I must be certain that God is faithful in all his promise of redemption. And thirdly, you and I must be certain that God has called us to be faithful as we await the fulfillment of his promise. Until that day, even if we suffer through 400 years, 500 years of silence, God has called us to be faithful. For you and I, we can look at the same thing. Here we are awaiting God's final promise to come and to bring us home. Well, God is sovereign over all creation. God is faithful. And God has called us to be faithful while we await that great and wonderful day. For us today, we look back towards redemption. 
while Zechariah was looking forward. Yet we still have promises that God has given that you and I are to look forward to. The story of the Bible is continuing. Yes, it is closed. We have the last written words of God, but yet the story continues in you and I today. We are living in chapter 3, redemption. But you and I are looking for that fourth and last chapter, consummation. Our days may remind us of the closing days of the Old Testament. Wickedness is rampant. Religious leaders are corrupt. They're preaching a different gospel. Uh, Rulers that serve only their own interests. You and I may say, look at the darkness of the land ourselves. However, God speaks to us today as he did to them. Remember my promises. To quote the Apostle Paul, who once again, this time from Romans chapter 8, verse 30, says this, And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. Help me out. And those he justified, he will also glorify. That's the promise that you and I are living in today. And you and I are called to be faithful to God in living out our calling, our plan, and purposes as we await that final day. Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica in this great and final promise. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and will be left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You and I also have a Malachi chapter 4 where God says, I will come again and make all things new. And he has promised to send his son for us once again. But until that day, walk blamelessly, holy in my commandments. Titus chapter 2, chapter 3 tells us that. 2, 11 through 13, I may be getting it wrong, but live soberly and righteously in this present world until that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God. So Luke tells us, be certain that God is sober. So this is the first century Christians. Be certain that God is sovereign over all creation. God is faithful in his promises of redemption. God has called us to be faithful. And the the same certainty comes to you and I today. Not that we're 400 years from Malachi's promise, but you and I are now 2,000 years from Jesus' promise to his disciples. So what should you and I do? Be certain that God is sovereign over all creation, including the rulers, the timing, the nations. God is faithful in his promise of redemption. We will one day be fully redeemed. Creation says in scriptures, scriptures tells us that creation itself groans for that final redemption. It's coming. But until then, you and I must have certainty that God has called us to be faithful as we await the fulfillment of his promises. So for you and I, until that day, Let us join Zechariah. Let us join Elizabeth to serve God in our generation, looking for that blessed hope by trusting in the great promises of our God. Luke is written for their certainty 
and for our certainty today. Let us be certain that God is a good, wonderful God. I'd like to close with 1 Thessalonians. I think it may be on here, Jake. Chapter 3, it's verse 11 through 13. Now may the God and Father, and may, may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may be established in your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the beginning of our Lord, or at the coming, excuse me, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Until that day, let's live in a life of certainty. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask the worship team to come up. We'll have the, uh, if I can have the uh, elders come up afterwards, we'll have a quick moment of prayer before we start putting everything away to get ready for the banquet. But I just want to challenge you. As you read and pray and share the gospel of Luke this, this, during this season of time with us, let us be certain the, the promises, the commands of Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not certain, I pray that you would come to know him. I pray that you would find the strength and the, courage, and the encouragement found in scripture, that you may be certain. John tells us these things are right that you may know that you have eternal life. Do not leave here if you do not know. If you're here this morning, you're struggling with certainty and God's call in your life. Would you let us know? Let us pray for you. Let us find ways to encourage you and strengthen you through scripture that when Christ comes, that we may be found ready. Father, thank you for your goodness and your love for us. You are so good and so kind. Pray that you would bless and guide us Lord, give us that certainty as we read and pray and share the gospel that others may come to know you and may their hearts also be turned towards you. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us? And we're going to close with just the song, Forever Reigns. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.